0: What's up Unusual? Jim Martin here from the Unusual Buddha Podcast and the dot-com here to talk to you for a second about Anchor. Uh, it's the service I use to make this very podcast. Uh, first and foremost, it's free. Secondly, they give you tools you can actually record and edit your podcast either from your phone or from a computer. Uh, Anchor also helps with distribution of your podcast. Uh, they can get you on Apple, and Spotify, all those. Uh, you can start making money from your podcast with no minimum listenership, and it's everything you need all in one place. So, check them out. It's anchor.fm slash start. That's anchor.fm slash start. Can't wait to see what you create. What's up, Unusuals? Jim Martin here from The Unusual Buddha. We're here with Scott Tuzza. we got a great interview planned for you guys. Uh, we're going to talk to a real live, actual monk, uh, somebody who went out and did the thing and uh, came back to the real world to bring it back to us. <music> So uh, please, Scott, go ahead and introduce yourself.
1: Thanks, and it's it's really nice to be here. Um, my name is Scott Tusa, and I'm a Buddhist teacher. I live in Brooklyn, New York, at the moment, and uh, yeah, happy to get into our combo here. Absolutely, absolutely, very
0: exciting. So, so um, you're. And I just want to be clear: you're still ordained. Is that is that the case?
1: No, no, no. I'm not a monk. I, I, um, I return I my monastic vows in. Um, Basically, at the, the end of two thousand sixteen, okay. so it's been it's been two years.
0: Okay. Oh wow. So so you 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 had a long tenure there for for sure.
1: Yeah, I was the uh, Hmong for about nine years, and uh, actually exactly nine years. And uh, yeah, it's been two years trying to you know make the transition on the other side.
0: Yeah, get trying to get back to to normal people life.
1: <laughs> I guess so. Yeah.
0: <laughs> All right. So just uh, let's let's talk about your early life a little bit. Uh, you know who. Where, where did you live before? Where um, where did this interest in, in, in monasticism come from? Did you, was this something that was prevalent early on?
1: Yeah, I think, um, you know, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area and um, I went to college in Boston and that's, you know, when I was around uh, 18, 19, I went to Berkeley College of Music. And um, I was—I've always been kind of a musician my whole life, and uh, grew up playing in punk bands, and also playing jazz. My dad's a jazz musician, so um, so I grew up kind of like in this alternate, you know, like grimy gutter punk scene in Berkeley, California, and then and then also like you know having a real education in jazz history and and like lineage because my dad um, played with some of the greats. So so then you know around. 1718. I started getting kind of like more serious about jazz and modern jazz. And so, um, yeah, I went to move to Boston to go to school. And that's really where I met the Dharma. That's where I got interested in Buddhism. And I think for me, the monastic thing was kind of synonymous with it almost. Like when I started to learn about Buddhism, just what I was called to and what I respected the most was like images of monastics you know, teachers who were monastics and it just sort of, I don't know, it was just, there was no reason. It just sort of called to me.
0: Okay. Did, uh, was there an easy transition or did you just jive in both feet?
1: Oh, to being a monk? Yes, sir. Yeah, no, that was a long process. So, so around 19 is 1890 is when I started, um, you know, got interested in meditation and Buddhism and then, um, and then, I met my first kind of Tibetan Buddhist teachers around age 20 who were monks. And I ended up moving in with, with, uh, at the center where one of them lived and he was a monk from East Tibet. He'd been a monk since he was four years old. I mean, oh, just wow. imagine that. <laughs> like, me, that's amazing. I mean, and also like, uh, yeah, anyways, a <laughs> really different than, than, than my path. But, um, so I got to kind of get a flavor of what, Monastic life might be for for someone in the Tibetan tradition living in the West, and um, you know. So I, I kind of became his cook and attendant and helped around the center there. And At that point, I really was getting pretty serious about wanting to become a monk, and I was practicing a lot more and studying Buddhist philosophy with him and other teachers. And um, and around that time, I met my main teacher, uh, Lama Zopa Rinpoche, who I started to ask and kind of consult on, you know, what did he think, you know, and he kind of. Gave me a sort of, um, you know, he's the kind of teacher people told me like when people, when, when people should ordain, he's kind of like super gung ho about it. Like he's like, yes, let's do it tomorrow, you know. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and with me, he was like, yeah, you could do it, you know. Kind of like he wasn't like you know saying don't do it. He was just saying you could do it, and then he was saying you know, uh, there may be some kind of challenges that 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 you run into when you're graduating from college, right because I had like two years left at music school in Boston. Um, so anyways, I, I, you know, I just decided to wait. Part of that was like, I had that same retreat I had met like uh, uh, a girlfriend. <laughs> and So like it was these weird <laughs> worlds where I wanted to become a monk, but like still I was like, you know, in, you know, deep in it and still like struggling with how to, how would I deal with celibacy and not, you know, having a romantic partner anymore. So it was just kind of obvious. I was 21 at the time. It was like, yeah, I should just wait this out. And so between the age of 21 and 28, um, I, you know, I graduated from from music school. I I ended up uh, playing with some bands and touring with some bands and then ended up becoming a recording engineer in the San Francisco Bay Area. uh, Recording a lot of like indie rock bands and different projects. Oh, wow. And yeah, and that was kind of like a big part of my life. And at the same time, continuing my Buddhist education, um, uh, continue to do retreats, you know, all of that and living in the San Francisco Bay area. And then around age 27, I just kind of got sick of it all. And I was like, well, my practice is kind of stagnant. I don't feel like I'm making that much progress. I also feel really sucked into life, like my work life. And I just wanted to go deeper. And then this strong wish to become a monk again arose and, um, And I talked again to the same teacher, Lama Zohar Rinpoche, uh, uh, you know, got his advice and he was like, yes, you know, here's robes. So it was like more immediate. He's like, here's robes. Oh,
0: no, no, come do this.
1: (laughs) Exactly. And do it, you know, whenever you want. And uh, he actually advised, like, try to take with the Dalai Lama or this other teacher um, that uh, who passed away now, but was was, um, a well-known teacher at the time. And so, yeah, so, and then I think, a little less than a year from then I ended up in India um taking uh uh monastic vows with with a Dalai Lama in front of you know with a whole bunch of other people too.
0: Oh outstanding. Uh do you think you, you yeah. came up against any unique difficulties being a, a Western student? Was there any like unique pressure uh at, at the centers or or while you were over there? Was there were you held to a different standard or anything like that? I've heard some people say that uh they they view and maybe it's not a racial thing, maybe it's just a cultural thing, but they they view outsiders uh, in in a completely different light. Is that true?
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, it's always a changing thing and there's no, I don't think there's a universal around this because you have teachers who, uh, you know, I'm mostly in Tibetan tradition, so I can only speak for that. And my experience of it, obviously. Um, And You know, you, I have a range of Tibetan teachers, some of them really willing to meet Westerners where they are and really like, you know, understand, uh, uh, modern Western culture and, you know, are younger. So they kind of like, I don't know, they have a little bit more connection and some who are really traditional and kind of what I'd call a little bit more old school style to right. Buddhism. And I personally respect both. It's just different approaches. And, um, and so, yeah, I, I think no matter what, when you're having these cultural bridges where the Dharma, uh, the Buddha Dharma is coming from one country into another, you're always going to have some kind of xenophobia and kind of, chauvinism to a certain extent from certain right. sides but then also you're going to have really wonderful kind of people bridging the gap too and i and i don't think it's you know often i think sometimes the, the 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 chauvinism comes from a um a responsibility to protect like the tradition and lineage so it's not always a bad thing it's just it can kind of it can kind of uh, be a, a tough one when when teachers are unwilling to to meet their students, but personally I've been lucky, and I, I I feel like all of my teachers have really tried to meet me personally where I am, and are you know they're they're very developed practitioners, uh, the, the teachers I've worked with. So that allows them to be flexible in their compassion, and that's a sign or a mark of a, of a you know developed Buddhist teacher.
0: Right, right, absolutely. Yeah. Uh that's that's something interesting I found. Uh I, I actually come from the angle of uh Theravada. That's the closest uh I live in Virginia and the yeah. closest, uh temple nearby is is Theravadan and uh it was unique to see because and I don't know if this is uh I wouldn't say it's to the, I don't wanna paint the tradition in a broad stroke like that, but they uh there was the, the monk that taught me was the only one that spoke English there. And um he was actually from Pennsylvania. He was the only one that wasn't from the old world. Uh and he said that there was a lot of external pressure, or I guess internal, really, uh, from the elders at the temple to try and get money from, as he put it, white folk. Uh, so yeah. <laughs> it was an interesting uh, thing. Like, like, wow, like this is supposed to be so um, accepting and so open, and there's still a little bit of that, like you know, where's your money? You know, here's the collection plate or something like that. It's it's, it's interesting to see how I guess uh, yeah. it's probably specific to each temple. All right. So we'll, uh... I
1: mean, that exists in, that exists in Tibetan Buddhism too. Um, I mean, you have in Tibetan Buddhism, you have a culture in diaspora right now who basically, you know, a huge amount of refugees left in the communist Chinese invasion in in the 60s and um, or late fifties. And, um, and so, yeah, you have that issue too where they're trying to support their monasteries and, and, and so they're relying a lot on, on support for that. And so, you know, uh, outer, uh, foreign support. And, um, yeah, I don't think it's, um, it, it, I know what you mean and it can, it can sometimes be off-putting, but, um, ultimately, you know, I feel like we do need a balance between building the, the uh, funds going to build the Dharma here in our Western countries. Um, and at the same time supporting practitioners there because, um, you know, for instance, uh, my teacher, Sony Rinpoche, um, he, he has um, inherited um, from his predecessors a lineage that supports um, nuns, which is okay. a little bit more okay. rare in Tibetan Buddhism because it's definitely been more of a patriarchal—it's a patriarchal, uh, uh, patriarchal society—and and the, the monks were often given a lot of preference over the nuns. And so, this was in the—you know—he's uh, this has been for hundreds of years, so it's yeah. a kind of a unique thing. And so, he goes on supporting nuns, and so you know, they'll ask for money to support the nunnery. And I think that's a really good cause because it's usually yeah. poor, um, uh, uh, what I would say, uh, uh, people in Nepal in the mountains who they need to send their children away to get educated. So it's, it's, it's not only giving the girls a religious or spiritual education, but it's also like a way they can get a Western education so they yeah. can improve the society as a whole. And so I think they've done some studies that, um, educating, uh, girls in third world countries is one of the best ways to improve like the country as a whole absolutely so there's there's like a social element to it too that i think is helpful but I, but i hear what you're saying and it can sometimes be off-putting when it's just like it feels like we're being used or something like that you know
0: so yeah that was that I, I guess i don't want to like i said i don't want to paint them with broad strokes and say that they're all uh yeah. trying to take our money but uh he, he The way he put it to me, and, and he and I got to. Know, I'm sure you you probably knew your teacher much better because you guys were, were together more often. But uh, he and I we, we had weekly classes, and you know I was still living my life doing my thing. But uh, when we met, he he would tell me like a lot that you know hey just they're gonna pressure you to bring stuff, bring food, or bring uh, yeah. toiletries, or bring you know you know don't don't be afraid to give. Just uh, he said if 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 you he said go buy me go buy a bag of apples or something. You know what <laughs> I mean? I put it that way. So. There was ease some pressure on him, and uh, and and it did help the, the the monks there as well. It's a very small community. It's uh, thirteen monks, and, and like I said, this oh. is a
1: rural area in Virginia. So, totally. Uh, yeah, see. and sometimes these are cultural translation issues too that are tough. Yes. Because, yes. like for instance, uh, in in um, Asian cultures where, where there's Buddhism, at least you know you have South Southeast Asia, India, et cetera, Nepal. Um, there's just an element. That Especially Burma, Thailand, where it's just like um, support for the sangha is built into the social structure and, and support for the monastic sangha. And, and there's like the, a reciprocity seen there. So it's not seen as like just like doling out something. It's like, again, there's benefit to the society. And I think it's a little bit of a different way to look at it than uh, the Western uh, late stage capitalism, which is like every man, woman for themselves. Yeah, which actually is destroying society. So, you know, there's like these elements. But then, of course, when they come here, sometimes we can be looked at as like the rich, you know, Yeah. Uh, American and blah, blah, blah. and And yeah, and that's I think that's not so genuine if they're coming here with that attitude, because, you know, if there's benefit, we'll support them. That's the whole right. idea, and like you don't, you know what I mean. So yeah, but I hear what you're saying. It can, <laughs> there can there can be some funny things in there. So, so.
0: Yeah, yeah, I agree. And uh and and it's and it was interesting because the uh the and uh, so your monk was an established monk, your teacher, he was well established. Well,
1: I have, I have um I have many teachers um a, a majority of them are monastics, but some of them are are not monastics. So for instance, the Lama Zopa Rinpoche is a monk. Okay. Uh, Soni Rinpoche is a um uh, a lay teacher or uh, he's okay. a, um, a non-monastic teacher. So in Tibetan Buddhism, we can have lamas, which just means someone who's weighty with qualities or like a teacher. We can have teachers who are both monastic and non-monastic. That's okay. accepted. In well,
0: that's case. exciting. That's, that's, yeah. I'm sure that it keeps it spicy uh, at, the, at the temple or at the Dharma center, wherever you're going.
1: Yeah, it's definitely, um, I mean, it just offers lots of different flavors and, and, you know, having teachers both as monks and, and not as monks. I, I really, yeah, I get different benefits. I mean, there's, different flavors and different benefits.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So as a, as a monk, you said you mentioned you went to uh, Nepal, where, where all did you go?
1: Well, um, so it basically, I, I was mostly in the States during my nine years as a monk. I, I lived in California in a retreat center for three years, um, on the central coast. And then I lived for seven years in Crestone, Colorado at my teacher, Sonia Ramshi at his retreat center. And, um, and then I would go to Nepal. Uh, well, I went to India to ordain, and I was there for three months, kind of traveling. And then I would go to Nepal every few years to um, study, and uh, okay. mostly in uh, just Kathmandu. And there's a few monasteries, uh, um a few uh, uh, just centers where I would study or or just stay and practice around the area. Okay, uh,
0: what, what was what was the daily life like? If you said you were living at the center, what was like? What time did you wake up? What was your, your schedule like on a normal basis?
1: When I was in retreat, in a retreat center?
0: Yes, yes.
1: I mean, so when I was in retreat, so basically what I did for a majority at least of the first five or six years of being a monk was I spent about six months of the year in retreat, uh, which would be just private retreat. So myself alone in a cabin, you know, usually – suffering through it (laughs) but uh no i'm just joking it was really really great too but hard you know you could imagine so and it's in what we do is we separate the day into four sessions and usually four two-hour sessions and i would do two hours or maybe a little less sometimes each session and um and so you know you sometimes i wake up um so i wasn't on a schedule with other monks i was on my own thing basically and so i was just responsible for for kind of like engaging in a practice for a certain amount of time. So I'd commit to like a hundred days and I would, you know, maybe wake up at six, whatever, seven, do some practice, eat breakfast, do some more lunch break, do some more practice, do some practice in the afternoon, dinner, do some practice, go to bed. So it's like a full-time thing. Oh, wow. That's, yeah, that's intense. And then, you know, and seven days a week. And so, you know, you just, because I had already been practicing for quite a few years, I knew how to self-direct my retreat. And I also had, uh my main teachers at the time kind of uh, getting advice from them what to do and and being able to engage like that so it was a monastery but it was like more like a retreat monastery so everyone was in their cabin
0: okay so more like uh everybody's on an island kind of thing
1: a little bit we'd see each other uh from time to time we sometimes we run into each other when we're hiking around but um but yeah, we wouldn't, that was kind of the one thing that was a little bit different <clears throat> in my monastic life. I didn't like get to really experience like a monastic community, okay. um, like being like an integral part, like the sweeper and then the cook and like that kind of stuff, which has its benefits. Right. I went more just straight into like a lot of retreat practice.
0: <clears throat> so, so be honest, were there any moments where you, uh, where you hit a wall where it was like, I, I can't do this anymore. Was there anything, anything like that happened or were you just all in?
1: Like can't be a monk anymore?
0: yeah yeah like i just oh yeah so many, are
1: you kidding me yeah i had so many i mean it's sort of like a wave you're writing it's it's a lot like being married <laughs> <laughs> even though i've never Aren't been married yeah there you go or like being in a long-term relationship it's like right. yeah you just have ups and downs and it's like you're just riding those waves and you have a commitment to the person or the thing you're doing and so you're writing those waves within a commitment and i think it's much more about like as a monk, it was much more about like meeting my mind in those situations, like again and again and again. And that's where, for me, through monasticism, the Buddhist path really became a, a, like a real life lived path, you know, where I started to understand the structure of the, the religious tradition or the spiritual tradition um, and made it uh, like that, that could be something really lived and personal um, and just, watching my mind go through the waves of sort of desire, craving, aversion, ignorance, and sort of writing those. Um, so yeah, no, I hit plenty of walls. And, you know, among all of that, I was working a lot with just drama practice as a whole. So like you hit all kinds of obstacles there and also break through them and, you know, and then there's new ones to work with. <laughs> it's, it's like,
0: Climb the wall just to find there's another taller wall.
1: <laughs> yeah. And it's sort of a, yeah, it's just like I I just treat that 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 is the path. That's what the spiritual right. path is, you know. Yeah.
0: And uh and, and you said you actually you met the Dalai Lama himself. What tell us what he's like? Is he did you get to talk to him at all? Or
1: I didn't get to talk to him like a lot. It was basically so I got ordained with a um, hundred and twenty plus people, and okay. uh, from all over. So we were kind of like they group all the foreigners into one group. So it's like people from different Asian countries, okay. some Tibetans, and then Westerners and. Etc. And so, yeah, at the end, we we all kind of got to go up and 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 you know, uh, make an offering or just you know say hi. And yeah, I, I just I was so blown away and so like overwhelmed <laughs> with emotion. I didn't even look at him. I just looked at his feet. And he was like, "Where are you from?" Like America. And he's like. I think he laughed or said, Oh, good. And then that was it. <laughs> <laughs> There's no, no high
0: five moments or anything like that?
1: <laughs> no, it was nothing like that. And, you know, I think he was a lot more accessible to, um, I mean, he's older now, so he, he, he doesn't have like, like, uh, I think they they protect his health a little bit more with time, but yeah. in the last 20 years too, he's just got, gotten really busy. So it's hard to have like private audiences. With yeah. Him. But, um, but yeah, for me, that's all I needed. I mean, it, it really, I mean, I'd been coming to teachings with him for many years and really in his presence, you could be a a pretty far away and feel the power of who he is and get a lot of benefit from
0: it. Yeah. That was another thing I was going to ask you. I've heard, uh, and and again, I've only read things. I've never actually talked to anybody that's, that's uh, stood in front of him, but I've heard he's, his presence has a, has a, has an almost a weight to it. It's in itself. Is that, is that the case?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's like, um, I mean, I usually just end up crying like a baby, <laughs> <laughs> and you know, especially cause it was the day I got ordained. So there was like that energy and momentum and, you know, it was very emotional. So it was like, um, yeah, it was like that. Yeah. It's very powerful. The center I lived at, he actually came there twice. So when I was living there, he came there once. And that was, that was really, um, in Boston, near Boston. Uh, it's called curricula center. And, um, and uh yeah, that was just intense I mean I just remember just weeping but it's not like you know sadness it's just right. like just a, just the power of the situation and, and you know I would say you know to, to be more I don't know in my opinion I think it's when human you know it's, it's of course a person can be weighty in the power of compassion they hold
0: uh-huh. and that
1: has a that has a power and an energy to it and when people are all like kind of when that when that energy and power meets other people, it sparks their faith. And then it's like a wave or it's like a wave of goodness that starts to come out. And and maybe faith isn't the right word, but like it sparks their compassion, it sparks their like inner most uh, like uh, profound being. And so it's just like an energy field you enter and I think it's just very, it's usually quite palpable and emotional. So I think of it as more like interdependent because I think sometimes, yes, he's pretty amazing, so there's no denying that, <laughs> but then some people can get into that. And then it gets into like, uh, Oh, well then you're, you're like, you're not recognizing, Oh, well, also it's like the interdependence of like everyone when we're developing compassion and coming. So it is powerful because when there's a person who's developed it to its uh, conclusion of enlightenment, because it's like, it's mirroring the the potential in all of us and mirroring it, not as a, as a, 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 a you know, a talking point, but as like a felt experience in the room. Right. And that's what's so cool. And and then it just reflects off of all the beams in there. That. So that's kind of my way of thinking of it lately. You know. So
0: it sounds sounds really powerful. I mean that's that's amazing.
1: Yeah. It was. <laughs>
0: yeah. What um so so you you obviously you had a more a much more intense uh learning experience as a meditator and and, and, and taking ordination. Um what do you feel like you learned uh, that would be different from how like a, a you know, standard uh, reading the internet, uh, practicing at your leisure kind of person would learn? What do you think uh, you learned that they would not?
1: Yeah that's, yeah, that's a little tough to answer. Cause I think, you know, we each have our individual approach and kind yeah. of proclivities and stuff like that. So I don't know if it's something people wouldn't learn, but for me it was, um, the power of, uh, of lineage, which is something that a lot of us are um, in the dissemination of Buddhism into like the hyper individualistic culture we're in in America, um, I find that, that one of the one of the hidden or unconscious ethical dilemmas for us, which we don't realize, and I use ethics more general here, is something that's um, not as a rule, but as a way like we thrive as a human being right? The behaviors we act on with our body, speech, and mind. And so some of those are conscious and some of those are unconscious. And I feel because of the hyper individualism and, and sort of the, 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 the bent away from uh, recognizing that there are people out there who have done these paths before us, who can help us. um, And we want to sort of, we want to believe that we don't need anyone To do anything which is actually false because we can't do anything even just we can't even eat without other people it's not possible right because all of our food is is interdependent it comes from lots of different beings so what i found is um i didn't connect with lineage a lot when i first became a buddhist to me it was like oh this is just something they talk about that like that they do that's that's asian buddhist and like you know, I didn't get it. And then it just took years of un- unwinding my own individualism and how that was harming. me, Right? Yeah. And how those those hidden unconscious attitudes were preventing me from opening up to deeper love and compassion and wisdom within myself. And so I would say that just takes time. And it's like healing a lot of those relational wounds for us, especially those societal relational wounds of hyper individualism and late stage capitalism that sort of don't allow us to bring out our full humanity, which is actually, I feel, is in connection with community. And so lineage is, is not so much about hierarchy, I feel it's more about community. And it's not so much about like power structure and giving our power to someone else, it's just a recognition that, that human beings have done this for thousands of years, and, and, and if they've done their work properly on the path, they're there as a guide for us, not as someone we have to give our power away to, but as someone who we can rely on as a mentor. And so, to me now, when I think of lineage, like it's something I can connect into—not all the time, but pretty—you know—I can think of it, and it's it's the power of what we call refuge in Buddhism, you know, right. where the refuge is mainly in the Dharma, but then that Dharma is being held by a lineage of individuals of of, of you know, all, at all kinds of levels of of their. Uh, realization and process on the past. So I think that's something that I see, um, really difficult thing to translate for Westerners, uh, because it's just something we don't feel yeah. and it's, and it's, so it's something that has, one has to come into through practice, you know?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, and that's honestly a perfect segue into the, uh, the next question I have for you is, uh, what, what is it is, what, what are the reasons you would say that people should seek out a teacher? Like what, what is, um, Uh, I guess, what what are some of the pitfalls that having a teacher uh, can keep you from, I guess?
1: Yeah, maybe I'll start with the first part of the question. Um, I mean, I think it's just really straightforward in a sense that, like, you know, most of us, we don't try to fix our own car, you know? We go to a professional who has studied how to fix a car, (laughs) you know? we (laughs) Absolutely. We don't, you know, when we want to train to be a life coach or trained to be a firefighter or trained to be a, you know, a technician or, or it or whatever, we go to a, a school and we engage with some kind of mentor or, or teacher who, who knows what they're doing. So just on the mundane level, we do it all the time. And so on the spiritual path, something much more circuitous and uh, uh, you know, esoteric sometimes and also uh, fraught with obstacles I mean not necessarily but you know just challenging I could say Um, we definitely need some kind of teacher I feel at some point I think like not everybody needs a teacher right away Um, so some people can kind of get away with books and YouTube and podcasts for a little while and uh, going to some kind of like community sits and things like that and then at a certain point if they want to go deeper into their study and process of, 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 uh, the spiritual Buddhist path, I would say, um, at some point they need some kind of teacher. And, um, and then of course that's a big thing and that's a big weighty relationship that needs a lot of care. And the problem is, um, again, it's one of those cultural translation things. That's really hard to make that divide into the way a lot of us hold our our mentor relationships like a lot of us just look at our teachers as like okay this person gave me information done relationship finished like but whatever you know that's not really how it works in buddhism and even with an indian culture i don't know now but during the time of the buddha um even someone you learn shoemaking from would kind of be like your guru like there was an element of appreciation
0: and community apprenticeship even
1: yeah, and maybe guru is not the right word because that, that brings a lot of sometimes negative connotations for people. But, but there's an appreciation of lineage and of community and of like, it's not just knowledge we're getting from someone. There's also wisdom and, and depth that's not just analytical and conceptual, you know? Right. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. Um, so, okay, I think you've pretty much pretty well covered the, the benefits. Is there anything else you wanted to add to the, the benefits of having uh, a teacher, somebody who's been down in the dirt and all those kind of things?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think we talked about it quite a bit. I think, I think, I mean, there's always things I could add, um, but, um, just cause it's a big topic. Yeah. But uh, I, I, yeah, I think the benefits, yeah, I think that's pretty clear.
0: Okay. Uh, and what are, what are some, uh, you could if you read anything about, uh, there are people who, who do these practices uh, and kind of go it alone and have, uh, I guess for lack of a better word, some sort of mental breakdown in some cases. Um, so you want to get into what kind of, uh, kind of what are the drawbacks of, of trying to go it alone um, Mm -hmm. kind of things uh, I guess are concerning for going it alone.
1: Yeah. I think there are those cases you're describing, like where people um, aren't psychologically prepared uh, and then they sort of go out the deep end. It it usually happens when people go on like really intense retreats with, without um, screen, you know, enough screening or just, you know, enough, uh, preparation, I guess. Yeah. But I would say more of the danger is kind of, for me, it's, I don't know, I think it's more in line with what I was saying earlier, which is like, all this stuff just becomes information that we take in and then consume and then commodify, you know? Yeah. And it's sort of like this system of taking and regurgitating when we don't really have the wisdom, we just have a little bit of knowledge. And why that's dangerous is I think it, it has a, um, uh, I can't think of the exact word I want to say here, but there's like a hidden, uh, uh, again, I'll use the word ethic, but the way I really mean it is more like, like when we're not, when we're not recognizing the wholeness of how we want to live and behave in relationship to ourselves and others, we end up tearing down our own, goodness and our own compassionate nature because we engage in a way that's just primarily based on me and this kind of self-habit which is reinforcing the ego which is the opposite of the buddhist path so it's sort of like it's like sometimes the behavior of that kind of like now again this might be a little maybe taking it out into extreme but it's more like you know you see the the thing out there where we're really good at reading books and gathering information and suddenly being an expert and suddenly being like, you know, we can have like a long conversation about like what this Buddhist tradition says and what this says and why what they disagree on and what they agree on and all that. But at the end of the day, it's just words. It's, it's sort of like at the end of the day, it's, it's, you know, the heart is what takes time. The heart is what takes practice. Now I'm not saying an individual can't do that on their own for sure. They can, because as a human being, We all have the quality of Buddha nature, which is just a possibility or potential for awakening, no matter who you are. And so, you know, there's the argument that some will make that like, oh, well, we don't need teachers. We don't need lineages because we all have Buddha nature. But that Buddha nature needs nourishment and support and food and all that kind of stuff. And so I think it's more like a balance. Like, how do we just learn to hold these things in a way that's going to be culturally appropriate for us, and it's going to serve both us and and, and others in the long term, meaning right. like, you know, having healthy systems that can uh, be preserved for our children and grandchildren if they want to engage in it. And so, so yeah, I would just say say that. I think that's kind of what can happen with the, the lone warrior thing. It's more of a hidden, in my opinion, unconscious thing that happens where, where it's like a um, it just continues that ego driven behavior where it's all about me. Yeah. You know? And then we're, so it's we're very kind
0: of, sometimes pride centric, I guess.
1: Yeah. And it's sort of like the idea of like, okay, well, I, d- I just did this mindfulness training. Now I'm going to, where's my website to like throw up and start <laughs> teaching mindfulness. Like that's just happening all over the place. And you know, I, I'm careful saying that because also that's a wonderful thing where someone really it, you know, resonates with it and it's benefited them and they want to help others. And that's wonderful. It, it can have benefit in the world but there can be a dark side to it too, that I think we don't often talk about. And that's why I bring it up.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and then that's something I kind of wanted to bridge into is, um, with all these centers that are here in America, we've gotten, um, uh, new stories of, of, different types of abuse and things that are, uh, yeah. cropping up. And I don't know, again, most of these things are, uh, you know, in various stages of investigation. So there's really no telling if, if there's any truth to them at all, or if it's you know entirely true. Um, so, so how, I guess, uh, how, how can someone, uh, engage in that intense, uh, lineage relationship, but also avoid the abuse? Cause there's things like your stories of, uh, the crazy wisdom kind of things where, mm-hmm. oh, they, you know, there's the Zen tradition where they, uh, they, they, they'll whack it with a stick or, you know, whatever the case is, uh, how can you engage in this intense relationship while at the same time avoiding, you know, since you let your guard down so far, you have to avoid, uh being abused, I guess. So what, what, how do we strike the balance in that? Like, where is the line?
1: Yeah. I mean, that's a huge topic, right? Um, I don't know if I'll be able to hit all the points I'd want (laughs) in this conversation. I mean, the first thing I would just say, like, uh, uh, spiritual traditions and lineages are made up of human beings and in every sector where there's human beings, there's a range of, you know, people who act appropriately, act inappropriately and those who abuse. And so it's just, it's, Obviously, it's a more just, I don't know, endemic is the right word, but it's more like a, we're talking about something that's just throughout all sectors of life. And so it's, it's just understanding that we have to repair certain elements that are underlying how we treat each other. And, and that's just across the board, I would say, you know, no no matter what sector of, 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 you know, a law firm or a Dharma center, you know? Absolutely. Uh, And with that, we have to also set up structures that are safe and structures that are accountable and 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 processes of restorative justice when when things go wrong. Um, So there has so some of those have not been set up properly. And when you get into. You know like I said this this uh, the word guru t- it's almost become a bad word <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the word is actually a very beautiful word because it means somebody who's heavy with realizations and qualities yeah it doesn't mean it doesn't automatically it actually in Buddhism it can even refer to the nature of mind itself not even a person it Just yeah. means like you know realization itself so so it it unfortunately it's sort of taken on this idea of like we're our, you know of, of the, the negative downsides of hero worship and all these kinds of things and so you know in one way um i would say the centers and organizations have to take on the responsibility of protecting their students and the people who are visiting there by having uh ethics boards and and commissions and and having accountability for teachers right that's one side Uh, which which i think most teachers are all for you know um on the other side um which is maybe not always the popular view is, is as students, we do have to take responsibility for learning. What are we engaging in when we're engaging in a student teacher relationship? And what does that mean? You know, and it does. And like I said, it's easy when you meet someone who really inspires you and you've been wounded your whole life or you're coming in with a lot of trauma, it's easy to get enamored with that and to give your power away. And I'm a big fan that, of learning ways not to do that, first of all, and training teacher, training students and, and communities not to do that. And I would say training teachers in, in healthy ways of how to deflect is the wrong word, but basically not, you know, just like a skilled therapist would do. Yeah, you so you, you, you know what's going on and then you attachment. don't get into, yeah, you don't get into tricky situations, you know, where, where someone might be, um, attracted to you based on on them actually just being attracted to um what do you call it uh what you do and then it i feel it's the teacher's responsibility to be in the in the kind of parent role which is to always look out for the student and always um have the student's uh uh inner awakening in mind and outer awakening and and, you know having a compassionate attitude so it's complex you know in that way where i think it does take educating people a little bit more about what it means to. uh, take on a teacher in Buddhism and and that there's, yes. there's different levels of teachers. Like not every teacher has to be a, a guru level. So, so it's like, so it's, yeah, there's a lot of work to do here. And I think this is one of the big cultural misunderstandings that we have to work. With. I mean, honestly, for me, this was really hard. It took a lot of years to, to kind of like, uh, feel somewhat okay with what we're, what, you know, with kind of what, how we're supposed to treat that as a practice. Right. And, um, I, you know, went through a lot of pain and struggle on it. I mean, I wouldn't say, I'm. I mean, I wouldn't say that's over. I mean, I'm always going through challenges because whenever you're working with a teacher really intimately, they're also going to challenge you. So there's always going to be, you know, cause they're challenging you to wake up and your ego doesn't like that. Your ego is like, you know, uh, no, and so there's always going to be challenges. You're always going to maybe, you know, there's a possibility for disagreement sometimes. And so it's finding ways to, to, to uh, have reconciliation and, and a healthy relationship around that. But as far as abuse goes, that's like a whole different category. And, and I think, yeah. you know, just putting in more protections for both teacher and student that are just built into organizations uh, is going to be really helpful. And then training teachers in like what's appropriate, what's not appropriate, you know, just basic stuff. And then if someone's an abuser and and they, and, they, and they're and found to have done it, you know, they shouldn't be in a power. It's, it's kind of obvious. You know? Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, like I said, I don't want to, uh, steer a conversation, but you know, it's just the things that are floating around out there.
1: No, totally. You know, no, this is it's what I, this is what, uh, believe it or not. <laughs> you know, I, I, tell, I, end up, I end up answering questions on this a lot. I, the, um, you know, part of this thing I did for Tricycle on the student-teacher relationship. I didn't go so much into that, but there were, I knew that people would have questions on the blog on it and stuff.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's, and it's an intense thing. Like you said, you're, you're, uh, there is a certain amount of, uh, handing power over. I mean, you know, you're, you're an adult, you know, I know how to wash myself. I know how to feed myself, you know, what are you going to teach me? And then, you know, you realize that you really know maybe this much and you know, <laughs> have a whole world of knowledge to, to then take on and try and absorb. Uh, so it's like you said I yeah. think a very true thing the uh the, the ego is a big part and uh, and like you said there needs to be some sort of mechanism to uh make it right when it goes wrong i guess
1: exactly and i think when when it's a skilled teacher who's who has your best interest in mind and hopefully you checked first to see yes. if that person is like that that was my main point is as a student it's our responsibility to check okay Meaning to not just like like oh, this person is so like wise and so vibrant. I'm, and then just Yelp
0: says he's got a five-star review. <laughs>
1: exactly, yeah. Or this is the the His Holiness the whatever from this part of you know you know like we 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 get impressed with that stuff. So it's like balancing out the extremes of gullibility and sort of not checking, and then the extreme of doubt, where sometimes we like we're not willing to open up because we're, we're our wound is not allowing us. And right. so I think it's like balancing out those and just being having discrimination actually the student teacher relationship is also a way to grow discrimination so it's an incredibly powerful relationship and there's there's lots of texts also written on what you're looking for in a teacher and it says uh, even some texts say do not ch- you know check someone for 12 years before you take them as
0: yes a I was gonna ask you about that that, that is a, a real thing
1: yeah I mean I think it's also for most of us it's probably, maybe not practical but definitely you can check them you know, cause you could just study with someone more as a professor, like just right. kind of showing up to a class. And then actually, I feel that if there, if, if there's a genuine teacher student relationship that's going to take birth and the person is really a genuine teacher, there should be an element where they point you to the Dharma. That's the whole point. It's not about them. You know, the teacher is trying to point you to the Dharma all the time. And if that's happening, your mind is going to blossom. And then after a year, uh, six months, a year, two years, whatever, whatever's appropriate for you, it's just going to naturally take shape like any relationship. So I, I think it's almost like some of it's common sense in the sense that like, how would we treat someone who we're going to get married to? You know, Absolutely. It's almost a courtship even. Exactly. And so, and so we have to start being a little bit more. And, and again, I, I'm an advocate for just educating people on this. That's why I love talking about it. Absolutely. It's sort of like, and I'm not saying I'm that, End all be all of what that means. I'm just, you know, the giving information from the tradition as well as my experience, and hopefully it helps others to avoid um, a pitfall. And you know, at the end of the day, um, sometimes we we can't we can check someone a lot, and we might not. You know, something could still go wrong. So you know, it's it's, it's there is some risk involved at some point. But in I think in any relationship, there's risk.
0: You know? Absolutely, absolutely. And this is a question I've been uh, I've been liking to ask people because. Um, it's been interesting if you study it, I'm sure you, you, you're you probably well more, way more versed in it than I am, but as I've studied uh, the Dharma and uh, how it's moved through different places in the world, um, it seems like each culture kind of puts their thumbprint on it. Uh, what, what do you feel like uh, is America going to add something to it? I mean, hopefully we're not talking about the, you know, go to McDonald's and get a number seven mindfulness, <laughs> but uh, are we going to add something of value to this uh, for, for grandkids and great-grandkids down the road?
1: Oh, man. I certainly. I hope so. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, it's interesting because if you would have asked me this like a year or two ago, you would have gotten definitely like a more pessimistic answer. <laughs> um, I don't know. You know, that's a good question. I think. I think definitely there's the potential for it. Um, from what I've heard from some um, teachers I respect. And what I've heard from some friends who are kind of like super dedicated, you know, talking like multiple years of retreat, you know, kind of folks. Um, There are some really genuine Western practitioners out there. There's some people not just like gaining an understanding and some some depth of meditation. There's people gaining realization out there, meaning they're becoming they're becoming uh, holders of the lineage, you know, in some kind of way. And so, you know, we're going to see that more and more. And and that's what I look towards, is I look towards people who have um, digested the traditions really well, and then they're going to be able to augment it properly. Uh, I wouldn't say augment the Dharma, but augment uh, or or the presentation for us culturally. And so that is, I think, when we truly are going to start to see some profound, and that might already be happening already, uh, you know, it's a big world. Um, we're going to see some really profound uh, uh, teachings uh, for Westerners and, and, and sangha and, and uh, you know, possibilities for how the community might look. And, I um, think everybody's trying to experiment with this. And and I think, you know, I, I, I'm, I always look back to what is the intention behind it and what are the, what are the, are we reacting or are we responding? Right. And when I see reaction, I don't know if I trust it so much because I, I, there's a good chance it's coming from afflictive emotions yeah. and when I see responding, I see people who have done their work, have digested the practice to a certain degree and are really thinking, you know, uh, uh a lot and experimenting with what's going to work for, for Western. And I don't think it's a one size fits all. I mean, you're talking about America. It's like one of the issues here is like, what culture is it going to enter into? You yeah. Know? True. Um, and so you have really big issues that I don't think any other country had to face when the Dharma was entering into it. Yeah. I think in French, in Europe, and like French and other European cultures, it's actually a little easier. Because um, you have, even though they're pretty diverse cultures at this point, they're pretty diverse um, countries. But America is just this really interesting figure because we've we've almost been stripped of culture. Uh, and that that's what created the America is the, is the stripping of culture in my opinion, you know?
0: Yeah. And, and then the odd part is like, especially where I am, uh, being in the South and I'm, you know, you're, you're from the States. So you, you'll probably get this really well as, uh, they call this area the Bible belt. So there's a lot of, uh, you know, that's the devil. And, you know, you get this, uh, you know, Bible thumping old lady on her porch, uh, you know, who's mad at you because you're, you're quietly developing compassion in the corner by yourself, <laughs> yeah. and, you know, but her way is the way, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's definitely an interesting dynamic, but, uh, Yes, it's, it's another thing I found interesting, and I don't know if you wanted to talk on this at all. Um, I, I'm not well versed in speaking Spanish, but I've noticed a lot of uh, groups and websites and uh, and, and things. Is, is that gonna be the next big um, area for the Dharma to leak into is, is uh, South America and, and Mexico and places like that?
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, it already is. Like you said, I, I think it's a natural fit. Um, they are countries uh, where community hasn't been fractured yet. And so there's there's not a lot of hyper-individualism individualism like we have in the States, in my opinion, though I'm sure there's pockets of it, depending on what country we're, we're talking about. Because, um, you know, there's vast, there's just differences. There's so many differences. You know, you just go from Colombia to Venezuela. It's, it's yeah. pretty different. Um, of course, with a threat of being uh, South America. So, yeah, definitely. And I, I think there's just a natural, there's a natural spark that makes it a little bit easier for folks in those countries to have faith in it yeah. so there's not the obstacle of uh, uh the belief part is really easy and 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 I'm not saying that's always a good thing cuz like we were just talking about that can sometimes lead to problems right if people Absolutely. aren't using their discernment but when I was in Colombia uh I taught there in the fall I was just really blown away because it was a very different experience teaching them uh, Buddhism than teaching Americans Buddhism in general now again, I'm totally generalizing, but it was <laughs> it was pretty palpable for me. Like the areas where I tend to have to work really hard, they were just kind of looking at me blankly, like that's why you you know we know this. You don't have to, you know what I mean? It was just like there was like the seed was there, and then you just can talk about you can have information, and and it all gets held within a level of feeling and understanding. Where often for Americans, uh, and again depends because. Uh, often it's the privileged Americans who get to go to hear dharma teachings. Right. right. Um, and we tend to be very in our head and very conceptual and intellectual and analytical so that it's, what's difficult is to get the dharma into the heart where when I was in Colombia, I can't f- speak for Mexico or other uh, Spanish speaking countries, but the, the dharma is just already in their heart. It was like the heart is open. It was just kind of like, yeah. you know, and I'm not saying every individual, but uh, uh, what I saw. And so um yeah. So I think it's just a natural fit. And, and so you'll just see that continuing. And, and they're probably looking for alternatives to Catholicism. Um,
0: yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Which is deeply ingrained in, in, in South American culture in general is, is Catholicism. Exactly. Uh, so let's, uh, so I do want to ask you, how do you feel about teaching children to meditate? Maybe not so much the, um, and I don't want to use the word indoctrination. Some people actually like to use that word when they go into the religious teaching of things, but, uh, just a a meditation practice in general for children. How do you feel about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's great. I think, um, you know, maybe the way I would talk about it is um, the word meditation I think needs to be uh, uh, expanded on, you know, because when we think of meditation, we think of closing our eyes and watching the breath for the most part, right? So actually in Buddhism, the word meditation really means to familiarize your your mind with something that's that's going to be beneficial for you and others. And so when I think of meditation, I, I actually think of compassion uh, and and developing loving kindness and I think what what is most needed in America right now is a, is compassion and education and so if if uh, uh, compassion meditation is involved in that, I think that's like, that's going to have profound effects if a whole generation, let's say, or even a part of a generation is trained in that. And of course, in mindfulness meditation, I mean, that's going to help them too, but I don't think mindfulness meditation on its own will necessarily have the, uh, as much of a shift as training in compassion meditation.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And then, uh, so who, who are the teachers you look to uh, if you're, you know, you're out here checking the internet and uh, you want to, you want to, get a new 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 little nugget to think on uh who who do you turn to who are your people
1: sure i mean um you know i i I was joking with a friend that once once in a while i i take my head out of the sand of the tibetan buddhist lineages and look around (laughs) so so maybe i'll try to mention a few that aren't that aren't only in the tibetan lineages um but you know starting in, in what i mostly know um, yeah, I mean, I recommend my teachers. You know, Sony Rinpoche, uh, T S O K N Y I. Um, you can find some stuff on YouTube of him. Um, he's got a program called Fully Being, as well as a course online. Um, his brother is also a really popular teacher named Mingyu Rinpoche, M I N G Y U R. He's got really robust online programs that are really good, and and both of them are younger uh, Rinpoches. Uh, or tokus, and they're uh, very good at translating uh, Buddhism into modern Western uh, culture. Um, and uh, who else would I recommend? Of course, anything by the Dalai Lama, you know, always is, is pretty good bet. My teacher, Lama Zopa Rinpoche, um, he's got wonderful books and, and his organization, the FPMT, has a wonderful education department. People want to study traditional Tibetan Buddhism. Um, I'm a big fan also of Western uh, Thai force tradition uh, uh, monks and nuns. So um, uh, let's see. Mm. I mean, Biko Bodhi has some great stuff. You know, you yeah. go into Dharma Seed, um, Ajahn Suchito. I really like his talks. Um, Ajahn Sumedho, Ajahn Amaro. They're, they're all really, you know, because these guys have done, done their work you know they yeah. they've really steeped in it uh, for absolutely. 30 40 years more so some of those guys I check out um and then you know lately i am checking out a lot of uh kind of different non dual teachers and things like that um I'm I'm kind of really interested in the spiritual psychology world just seeing popping my head into what people are doing there so
0: absolutely uh, yeah that's, that's interesting you bring that up. It's like you're, you're reading my mind here. I actually have a couple uh, fan questions and, and that was actually one of the next ones is uh, in, in what key ways can Buddhist psychology improve upon and enrich commonly practiced Western therapy? So a, lot of, a lot of schools are teaching whatever alphabet soup they want to name it, uh, you know, MBSR or something like that. They're using these things in, in therapy. So how, how can Buddhist psychology maybe augment that or, or improve upon what we've been doing?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it already is because pretty much like a lot of the new modalities, not all of them, but a lot of them are, are, are cherry picking from Buddhism, uh, from Buddhist psychology. So it's definitely already, you know, affecting it. Mindfulness is just kind of mind, uh, mindfulness in, in most therapeutic modalities is becoming kind of pretty readily available. Um, I think personally, this is why I'm interested in the spiritual psychology thing, uh, kind of work that's being done now it's Buddhism can benefit in the sense of like getting out of this paradigm that we are somehow screwed up and need to improve. Right.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and, and so when you get into that paradigm, it still stays within the ego framework of, you know, I'm here and I want to get there. Uh, but when you're there, you still have problems, you know? <laughs> and so of course, when you're there, you could have healed certain, uh, uh, traumas to a certain extent, you could have healed, you know, just grown more resilient, uh, through therapy and and Mm. things like that. And that's totally fine. And I think that's really useful. Um, but I'm a big fan of like understanding that, like, I kind of see the spiritual path as like, it's like the ultimate healing we're providing for the fragmentation of, of, of ego itself. And so it's looking more towards, um, a wholeness that is our foundational nature, which in Buddhism we call Buddha nature, but what Buddha nature isn't Buddhist. It's just a phrase pointing to the, the, that, that the inner basic goodness of all beings, right? Yeah. So I'd like to see um, Buddhist psychology benefiting more in that way. And of course, Buddhist psychology has a lot of great, um, uh, really extensive uh, texts and, and ways of describing the mind and mental factors and, and, and emotions and, and their, you know how to counter them in skillful ways.
0: Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. And forgive me, this one's kind of long here, but, uh, but after I read the whole thing, you'll understand it's, it's actually a really good question. Um, how can we broaden the scope and appeal of the benefit we receive from Buddhist practice, wisdom and teachings to reach a new or overlooked audience who might be either scared off by dogmatic, uh, I'm going to quote it directly, dogmatic bullshit or spiritual woo woo in their Uh, interactions, uh, with a path before.
1: Yeah. I mean, Again, it's it's a it's a it's a little tricky to answer because uh, who we might have different. We each have our different proclivities, and we might have a certain response that, like, you know, one teacher, oh, that doesn't feel dogmatic at all, and then someone else comes along and feels that teacher is very dogmatic. So I don't know. Um, But the answer, kind of generally, I would say I kind of my first intuition was just to say I think seek out teachers who are really developed and who, you know, are also uh, know how to bridge things culturally because i don't know I, i'm a really allergic to woo woo stuff <laughs> personally although i have more tolerance for it now than i ever have but um because uh, sometimes you know if, if you if we look at our bias enough and we look at like what we we don't like so much about something and we can kind of let that be we can still take the essence of what something is yeah so meaning like you know you don't have to like the whole flower but you can take the essence of what they're saying but um yeah i've always been kind of anti-woo and that's why i've always looked towards just lineage holders who are like doing the real deal you know and they're not messing around so i think it's i I hate to kind of be a broken record but i would say it's going back to lineage and going back to like finding like lineage figures who really hold are holding it down and they're they're not just watering it down and commodifying it to try to make it palpable for a Western audience. Yeah,
0: because uh, and, and to expand on it, I do think a lot of people feel, and I've, I've written some articles about this myself, is that they're, sometimes the people that come from lineage, and, and I don't want to paint in broad strokes because I know lineage is not a bad word, it's not a bad thing, um, there seems to be sometimes a bit of, uh, to use a term from like uh, the sci-fi realm of things, there seems to be a bit of gatekeeping. Uh, kind yeah. of, you know, you're not good enough to pass this point, uh, you don't know the handshake or whatever the the thing may be. (laughs) You you feel like that's a, a, is that a new thing or is that uh, kind of an existing, I guess, nuance to uh, the teaching?
1: No, I mean, I think it's there as a structure in its best form, is there as a structure to help the student to like, to like basically, because for instance, there might be a really powerful medicine, but that medicine might kill you if you eat it. (laughs) <laughs>
0: right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs>
1: so, so they're going to give you a medicine that's going to work for you right now. So you can take the powerful medicine. Does that make sense?
0: Absolutely.
1: So And that can, and then of course there can be gatekeeping too, which, which I, uh, you know, going back to some of our previous questions, it's sort of like, that's, that's not compassionate. whoever's right. If they're doing it out of a bad intention. Um, but um, you know, I just realized something in the question that they might be asking, which is about ritual and yeah. sort of like what they might be perceiving as woo yeah Um, like the more esoteric elements like tibetan buddhism literally if you know nothing about tibetan buddhism you just look at it it looks really weird you know i'll just be really honest you know like i yeah i try to like look at it from sometimes without the eyes of like being having done it for 20 years you know and been in it and 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 i and i'm like wow this must look really weird to other people (laughs) And, and um and it's just like and so to answer that question more fully i would kind of go deeper into I actually think a big part of it is about repairing our relationship to ritual um, where it's been highly fractured for the last, let's say, 800 years, you know, or more uh, mm-hmm. moving from, yeah, more moving from medieval Europe. So like if we're talking about, a, let's say we're European uh, of origin, you know, there's a fracturing of our connection to the earth uh, done through sort of uh, really harmful uh, imperialist, you know, I would call them, in the name of Christianity, anti Christians, yeah. who, um, uh, you know, have have demonized shamanism and witchcraft and all these kinds of things, which cut us off from ritual, um, and then we in turn, you know, cut other people off from ritual, like like uh, uh, you know, people, uh, Europeans who, who enslaved other people, et cetera, or destroyed cultures. So, anyways, the um, I don't want to get too downer here, but but the point, (laughs) my point is um, I think there's a way to repair it because when I look at ritual, what might look woo woo to someone, I see symbol and you know what I see in symbol, I see awakening. I see like a mirror for my mind to work with. And so it's just pointing me back to appearance and emptiness. It's pointing me back to looking at the mind and looking at, wow, okay, so I can use this symbol in that way. And I'll say it in another way. As a human being, we—I—I I personally feel—we have no choice but to work in symbols, because we're we're kind of labeling things and naming them, and then we're and then that takes on us uh, like some kind of conditioning for us, like a table or a color or a certain kind of dog or a certain kind of cat, whatever the phenomena is, and so the mind's always working in symbols, and so Buddhist ritual is is simply using symbols to awaken the mind, right. Now, if you at, at a certain point you recognize that it's also a symbol and so you're not caught in the symbol yet you can use it. And right. so that's how I think we can recondition ritual out of the, um, I actually think uh, the scientific materialist perspective, which I'm not saying that's modern science cause they've moved on from that. Uh, a lot of uh, modern scientists, but I think it's still very prevalent in our culture mm-hmm. as an unconscious kind of uh, uh, way we approach the world scientific materialism is more or less a a dead-end road it doesn't lead anywhere it it leads to depression in my opinion you know so uh so so the problem sometimes is like we don't know how to go out of that model because that's our lens and therefore ritual just looks like really woo woo and stuff but when you learn about what ritual is it's not woo woo anymore it's practical right so i think that would be my answer is like learn what that woo woo is and then if they're talking about like new-agey woo-woo like soft speaking and all that kind of stuff i, I totally agree <laughs> <You know?
0: laughs> totally get that so there are some teachers i just you know hit the hit the eject button on the on the cd or whatever yeah. you know, pull the thumb drive out and just throw it across the room i can't do it
1: yeah and some people may love it and power more power to them it may help some people which is
0: absolutely so I, but i'm glad you answered that question i think that that really um and that's something i wanted to emphasize in this conversation because a lot of the stuff I, i'm a a more uh, though I had some teaching I've spent you know that was two years uh, I spent most of my time kind of doing it on my own for for the mm-hmm. most part and I think it's important to help eliminate the kind of stigma that's coming with uh, with the practice and in, in in America and and around here with the you know the more of the uh, abuse things you're hearing and things like that uh, there, there's getting to be a stigma attached to um, you know it's 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 not all cults it's not all um, they're not nobody's trying to brainwash you this is this is uh something they're doing as a benefit to you and uh and and you're you know if, if you're ready for that you, you it's okay to seek that out there's nothing there's no damage to you there's no uh issue of problems uh in finding a teacher or or that's that's something i wanted to do in this conversation was kind of eliminate that stigma that, that i think is kind of developing i mean it's not for everybody but uh it is a viable option yeah,
1: yeah no and thank you for that because i think these are the conversations i like to get out there a little bit more which i would call more nuanced conversations on it which doesn't then mean i'm expecting everyone to go out there and wear robes and you know yeah you know, tibetan hats like we're not going to do that you know and and i even think the, the student teacher relationship will shift a little bit um uh like you know if i'm teaching a dharma talk i don't like it's not culturally appropriate for people to prostrate and stuff like that. So those kinds of, you know, that's like very traditional within an Asian culture and it's not a big deal. It's just a way of paying respect for them. But for us, it's like this, you know, big, de- you know, big thing. And so, you know, for me, those are kind of things we can modify. And, you know, when I'm working with students, for instance, it, it's a little bit more, um, I wouldn't call it completely a pure peer, peer level, but, but I would say it's, it's a lot more of a spiritual friend level, you know, it's just yeah. sort of, where it can just be natural and normal and, and at ease, hopefully. And, and um, I, I really appreciate teach like my, uh, my, my Tibetan teachers, for the most part, very down to earth people. Like, and it's just what, what sometimes we don't understand is in, in some, uh, uh, I, I can't speak for all Asian societies, but I can speak for Tibetan society. There's like an appropriate way to behave socially in different contexts. So sometimes what we see that might happen in a temple, we might think that's the way they always act all the time. But it's not true. When you're just sitting down for a meal, you're, you're just people at a meal. And so, you know, you can have respect for your teacher and, and, and devotion at the meal, but you can also laugh and joke. And, you know, and, yeah. and, and it's not a, and it's not so serious. So I think a lot of people don't get to see the side of that because they just see people on thrones and all this ornate stuff not not seeing the other side of it, which which that's just like Tibetans can flow, I, I won't speak for all Tibetans, but generally the, the culture can flow with that dynamic, which means they're not they're not as rigid as us. So they're not like compartmentalizing it as much. Yeah. It's just like very fluid, you know? Absolutely. So they can even pay respect to someone they don't even like. It's just kind of a <laughs> cultural which for us that's like that's the epitome of evil. It's yeah. Like, exactly. If you don't like someone, oh, not you only do you, yeah, not, not only do you not show up to their Dharma talk. You definitely post on Facebook about, you know, and yeah, how shitty it. they are. <laughs> <Right>. So <laughs> guys, a shit
0: bag. Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
1: So so that's just just a big cultural difference. And, and, and honestly, I don't know, I have to say maybe I'm, I'm definitely biased here, but I feel a little sad for us culturally yeah. um, for that reason. That's one of the things I feel very sad for, like not sad, like poor people, more like compassion for folks, myself yeah. included.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, we're gonna go ahead and move on to uh, some closing thoughts. Uh, like I said, I got in there. The thing I wanted to talk about uh, with you is, like I said, kind of working to maybe. And and again, this is uh, like most of the things I do is to pique interest. I'm not here to um, any of the the unusual Buddha, the the blog, any of the stuff I do is not to be the only thing you should look at for knowledge. It should kind of pique your interest. I kind of want to to let it be that spark a little bit. And uh, what I wanted to emphasize here was that. Uh, It's there's nothing wrong with uh, lineage. There's nothing wrong with, um, you know, finding an established uh, teacher or an established um, monasticism or tradition or whatever you want to call it or whatever exactly suits you. Uh, I just wanted to do a little bit to maybe pique people's interest and kind of eliminate that sort of stigma that's developing. Is there anything you wanted to uh, maybe work with on a closing thought here to kind of put a point on?
1: yeah i was kind of thinking just to round out that you know i appreciate that sentiment like i said and and also um just having more conversations on it not not that one way is right just sort of opening up the dialogue about it um and i would just say on that note like i very much view the buddhist path as a a, a system that that was developed and is held uh, for for people to thrive and awaken and and you know really really uh offering that capacity and so in whatever way people can connect with that more power to them, you know, and, and my hope is that the, the elements of the, the Buddhist tradition that make it the foundations that make it um, uh, a system that can help people in their liberation remain and that it becomes accessible to people in a way they can work with it. And so ultimately, you know, there's so many gateways to Dharma. And so I think for people, I would just say, don't give up, just keep, trying and keep working with your mind it's it's all about i think opening up that personal inquiry into how we're perceiving ourselves how we're perceiving the world and really developing that that loving compassionate heart and that's always gonna gonna if you're developing that it's always gonna serve you well and move you in the right direction i think
0: absolutely okay so now we've got past our closing things here um let's get some shout outs in here where where can people find the great Scott Tusa, where do we go for uh, our fix? Where do we get that?
1: The mm, great, okay. Uh, <laughs> the, uh,
0: venerable, the honorable, the
1: honorable. The sort of mediocre uh, Scott <laughs> Tusa. <say> okay. <laughs> you, can, uh, you can find me, of course, online um, on Instagram. I think it's just uh, at Scott Tusa uh, on Facebook as well. Um, you can find me on my website at uh, scottusa.com. Uh, so that's S-C-O-T-T-U-S-A dot com. Um, I do have a podcast on, on my website as well as iTunes. It's called uh, uh, No Parachute. <laughs> I almost forgot what it was called. It's called No Parachute. And, and basically, it's mostly my, my Dharma talks. So I post one a month, different Dharma talks. Um, I also have a, a blog. So um, if you want to see the blog, go ahead to my website, uh, sign up for my newsletter. Um, other than that, I do a lot of retreats throughout the year, uh, group retreats. And so I got, I have um, a retreat coming up in upstate New York in August, August 2nd through 8th. That's going to be a silent, uh, mind mine, mine host retreat. Um, and then if you want to get out of the United States, I'm, I'm leading a retreat in Peru in April and in Colombia in June. So That's there's, a right. uh, lots of opportunities for that and uh, more to come. And then also I do one-to-one work with people, uh, one-to-one meditation mentoring, As you can find all the info uh, on that on my website.
0: Outstanding, outstanding. Um, all right, so uh, now I'm gonna move on to, I'm sorry to do this uh, egregious, uh, I have to you know pay bills and those kind of things too. Go for it, man. Uh, all so- good.
1: I understand. <laughs>
0: You know how it is. Internet isn't free for everybody.
1: No. Nope. Uh,
0: <laughs> all right. So anybody wants to uh, maybe join in this thing, help uh, support the Unusual Buddha uh, and, and what we're doing. Uh, obviously, we're on Facebook, we're on Instagram, we're on Twitter, uh, and we're on Pinterest. Believe it or not, we're almost everywhere. Uh, if you guys want to give a, some support to it, uh, we're at patreon.com slash theunusualbuddha. And as part of the uh, benefits for our members, I uh, give a shout-out to uh, to all 10 supporters. woo uh we have uh just want to say a quick thank you to Ben daniel heather heidi Jen christina Mary Shannon, Tara, and tara I got two terras it's important too mm.
1: <laughs> so, you always need two terras
0: exactly you can, don't go anywhere without your two terras um, <laughs> all right so is there uh, is there anything else you wanted to go on i know that's kind of wrapping up here where uh i've I've covered everything I wanted to do is there anything you wanted to go further into or
1: no, I think that sounds good, man. And I, you know, I just really enjoyed this. I really appreciate you having me on and, you know, wish you a lot of luck with the podcast and just everything you do.
0: Absolutely. And thank you very much for, for taking the time. I know you're a busy guy. You got a lot of, a lot of projects. I can't, I wrote down half the list and I got lost in, in, in all the things you you have coming up. So uh, best of luck to you and uh, and hope to see you out there sometime. Thanks, man. Take all care. Right. Good talking to you. Bye-bye.